Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Daniel Morgan Roberts. Now, Daniel is an author and recently moved here to the Phoenix area, and I had the pleasure of running into him in the CrossFit world. So we're going to collect his story today, learn a little bit about the lessons he's taken from his life, and uh, dive down that rabbit hole with him. So welcome on, my friend. Oh, awesome, awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, brother. I appreciate you coming up. So uh, first thing you did, you came in, you showed me a couple books that you'd written. Um, you know, I haven't had a chance to actually read your material yet, but I've heard some good reviews from those close to you, of course. And uh, I'm really excited to have you tell some of your story in your own words and I feel like one of the things that makes a story powerful is when we understand the context behind the person telling the story. So if you could give us a little color around young Daniel's life, where are you from? What was early life like for you? All right. Excellent. Yeah, I was, uh, again, I, I want to take this time too to thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I don't think there's anything, such thing as coincidence, just like where we are is where we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we met in a CrossFit world and I came out, out here from, uh, the Rocky Mountains, Denver, into the Valley of the Sun, the Arizona cactus, and absolutely love it. Everything has just been a synchronization of um, serendipitous nature ever since I've arrived, so I really appreciate being here. Absolutely, man. We're, we're happy to have you. Welcome in. I, I feel like you fit well here, just based on what little bit I've learned about you so far. <laughs> right, I do, too. I do, too. Cool Every deal, day brother. is just an ex- exploration. Like, when I first came out here, one of the first days, I just hugged a cactus. So I was like, is, <laughs> are you allowed to do that? Can, that can, can be dangerous, yeah, my friend. Can you, <laughs> can you just hug cactuses? They don't hug back sometimes. They, they yeah. do not. They yeah. do not. I found that out real real soon. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to because there, no, there was no cactuses to hug uh, where I grew up. So I grew up in uh, Thornton, Colorado, which is just a mm-hmm. little bit north of Denver, mm-hmm. uh, about 20 miles. So it would be uh, kind of the equivalent of um, well, like Scottsdale to Phoenix. Um, so a little bit north and I had a great childhood. I'm um, not gonna lie. I uh, grew up, um, not exactly, um, affluent by any means. Um, but one thing I'm learning now is that I grew up with enough to get by and that's really all, all that matters. So, uh, grew up with, uh, my mom, my dad, uh, my brother, my sister, I grew up, uh, scraping knees, uh, jumping in trees, um, typical, uh, reckless behavior of a, of a young kid uh growing up in in the times we did uh house was built in like the 70s 73 i believe so it was an older uh, ranch style house and out to like the left side out of our driveway was just just an open field and i remember going out there and just um uh the the typical skipping rocks um um rope swings that that kind of whole nature my uh, uh my dinner bell or my curfew was when the lights came on or, or when the crickets started started buzzing. So I had a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunity to just be a little boy. It was, it was excellent. Yeah, that's a real gift. I think we had similar upbringings based on that description. I, mine, it sounds like it was fairly rural where you grew up. Extremely, yeah. yeah. It was a north, uh, Denver north, but like now Denver is extremely expanded. Mm-hmm. But then it was, it was way out there, kind of like Scottsdale is now, and there's no streetlights. Kind of exactly how it was. Like even when we look at the development around us now, our little kind of cottage kind of sits like up, you know, like yeah. everything is just skyrocketing around us. And my mom's house, and I was living with my mom before I came out here. Is just this little quaint little ranch style home that is just surrounded by everything else. So, 
Uh, she's still there to this day. She's still there. Yep. Right on. down. So, um, I'm 32. So we've been in that house since I was born. Oh, wow. And she met my dad out in Colorado and then they got that house, um, shortly after they moved out there and did their thing and their, um, kinship. That's interesting in and of itself. I think the average person owns a house for like five years nowadays. Right. <laughs> She's been in there That's for 30, like 32. Uh. 32. And then, and, um, to also give her, um, credit too she's also been at the same job for 42 years wow amazing i think there's something like she has talk about consistency or talk about like um owning your a lot of pride in that yeah she definitely has roots in the community i would say yeah the roots in the community yeah they they know Kay roberts yeah if you're in thornton and yeah which is now a big town it was a little city or was a little town that was a big city yeah Kay roberts is synonymous right on well Obviously, in talking to you, you don't strike me as the type of person who, you know, is rooted anywhere at this point in, in time. Why do you think uh, you you were able to sort of cut those ties and, and escape a little bit? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, I, although my mom is extremely rooted, I carry a lot of my dad's aspirations. Mm. And my dad was, was very fleeting. He was, um, to use a metaphor that I heard today, he was like the kite and my mom had to reel him back in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I get a lot of that from him. I'm very, um, my aspiration is like explorative and I really like to just experience, I I think a lot of our, um, connections are through humans that we never would get the opportunity to meet. Like I've learned more through strangers than I think I have my, my friends, which Mm -hmm. each friend was at one time a stranger. So that's a unique juxtaposition there in itself. Um, but I love the explorative nature of just seeing everything around me Mm -hmm. and, I don't think we get that growing in, in the garden where we're at. I think we get that by planting ourselves elsewhere. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make. I think sometimes strangers are more honest with us than our friends because they have nothing to lose if we decide we don't like what they had to say. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? I'm yeah. wondering if, if has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. Um, it's been something to where like I I joke uh, or I've often joked about how like I, I wave to strangers and like I sit in the middle of park benches so people are awkwardly forced to sit next to me but that is absolutely true like I I like to smash like the actual I don't think strangers are strange mm-hmm. there's people we, we haven't met yet so and, and I try to smash that societal um, we can't get to know people and, until we know who they are which I think is interesting because uh, we live 90% of our lives based on what other people think of us mm-hmm. and the 10% of actually the people around us think of us right so right in order to actually grow with those strangers, we have to just reveal ourselves. And then again, strangers can become friends. That's interesting. So when you say, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there and just in that statement, but when you say reveal yourself, what do you mean by that? Um, I, I think like, can, can, cause you said like knowing like friends and that friendship, like we can often be so close to our friends that we won't even really tell them things. Cause we're almost, um, uh, not afraid, but, um, apprehensive of what they may think where like a stranger doesn't have any biases and uh, like I was alluding to like we can live 90% of our lives based on what total strangers think of us so that essentially takes away from who we are Mm -hmm. so if we're constantly creating a shroud or creating like a veil over how we're living uh, based on um, those that don't even know us I think that essentially robs us from living like our ultimate like completely uh, unadulterated um, spirited life yeah. So when you're talking about the other people or the way that we perceive other people thinking about us, are you talking about the fears that we have as individuals to sort of put ourselves out there or 
display some form of vulnerability or project our gifts into the world or do you mean something else very much so yeah through vulnerability i think there's no growth without vulnerability mm-hmm. uh so with that like like a, a mild segue or just like a like a introduction is i've been doing spoken word for 10 years mm-hmm. and honestly i did it at first just through catharsis just through writing just journaling but now i recognize that i've learned more about myself and others around me by essentially sharing pieces of me to complete strangers that I uh, essentially hid in like the dustiest corners of, of my conscious or my psyche Mm -hmm. and getting that chance to um, let those words hit the ether, let them hit the, hit the, hit the cloud share. I think kind of let them gain their own aspirations and their own manifestations. Mm. So when you're talking about the world of spoken word, for example, what does that look like for you as a performer? And maybe give us a little bit of color around what it looks like to do a show. I don't think a lot of people have actually seen a spoken word show. Yeah. So I, um, to go back just a little bit, what you're talking about, like uh, revealing ourselves mm-hmm. and, and being um, our complete nature. Spoken word has, has not only taught me to be myself, but people fear dying before they fear public speaking. <laughs> and I think that's so interesting because... It, it, this platform, for instance, we're, we're sharing our story. I'm getting to know you and you're getting to know me. But when our ancestors or even before that, those that have paved the way for where we are now, we uh, didn't have television. We didn't have all the um, uh, distractions that we have now. And we literally would sit and just share our story around kivas, around campfires, mm-hmm. anything like that. And so it wasn't a, a stigma to not be not comfortable sharing who you were and now i i feel like it you know, you know it's almost viewed the opposite and i feel like there's like a sense of release and i feel like there's a sense of um well-being that comes when you're just able to not only remove that veil but share a piece of you because chances are you're able to touch someone that you didn't think that you were going to be able to mm-hmm. it's interesting that you brought that up because i feel like in this world of modern distractions in a way and you know i'd love to get your take on this i feel like in a way the you know the social medias of the world pick your favorite company have given people an opportunity to do that and sort of mitigate the level of disaster that they might experience you know of being judged yes in that place you know it's like well i can put it on social media or what have you and someone may not like it but at the end of the day i don't have to receive that direct impact of their negativity, their negative energy. You know, there's always that one asshole that's going to say something negative, you know, once every thousand posts or something like that. But uh, for the most part, it gives people a little bit more freedom, I think, to express themselves. Yeah, it gets, gives them a sense of well, well-being and freedom as well in, in that expression. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about sharing, it feels like that's the sort of knowledge economy or the information economy that we live in right now. When you when you go across, people are look at social media. People are just sharing various things, whatever they are. Maybe it's not their own personal story, but they're at least in the practice of. And I'm I'm curious if that will ultimately translate back or bring itself back into the real world. You know, like when you and I met, right? We had no problem connecting because we're of similar mind. So we started talking on a little bit deeper level initially, but I don't feel like that happens for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. I. I um, and again, going back to like that kind of that stranger thing or that friend thing is that you can't really get to know someone on that level. You can't really share like, uh, cause we present ourselves with like an aura, like an energy. Mm. And there's only a way to share that energy is getting, getting into the, 
essentially the nitty gritty into those nooks and crannies and really getting to know who people are. And, and I think unfortunately with, with like, um, like the social media or even you, you, you ride the bus, you know, public transportation or you go to the market and like it, people find it difficult to have a three minute conversation with someone while they're checking out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost too easy to be like, Hey, how's your day? Or, um, uh, I really like your, your sweater or, you know, you strike me as an interesting individual, just something like that, like a little snippet, like a little glee, glimmer or shine or frost in their flakes, you know, or something <laughs> is, is something I think we're, we're, we're missing. For sure. I mean, it does seem that way when you are close to people, there's very little interaction, it seems. You know, you're in line, like you're saying, and people just stand there or they're just staring at their phones. Exactly. They're communicating with other people <laughs> that, aren't <laughs> there. Yeah. that aren't even there, which is kind of ridiculous when yeah, you think about it. It's extremely ridiculous. <laughs> so you're the guy that steps into the elevator and starts a conversation with whomever joins you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I used to call it Elevision. Like Elevision. People just randomly look up. Like you go, you're going up 20 floors <laughs> and you're just counting each and every one. Yeah. I like mean, the floors are channels. Exactly. You're going to channel 12. Yeah. You go to channel 12 <laughs> and you're just looking at the number and it's like, wow, like how I, I couldn't imagine our, our grandparents or even our, our parents. Like I can't imagine them because they talk about it, but being okay with that. Sure. Like just if we can't find commonality as, as people that share the same hearts and souls and eyes and ears like like really um there's there's an issue that i think we need to address yeah i think it's i think and i'd love to get your take on this sort of thesis i'm going to present that's just it comes down to supply and demand of people when i think of my grandparents or my great-grandparents they were out in rural georgia and when new people would come out that way it was a special treat it was like well there's new people you know we can speak to these people and learn about their lives and, you know, maybe share a meal or what have you. But now where so many people have moved to the cities, it's like, well, there's 1500 people on every block and I don't have to talk to this person because I'm just inundated with people constantly. And it's almost like I want a respite from it, not necessarily be involved in it. Yeah. Like you said, the respite, there's like um, a new person. There's like no lack of scarcity anymore. Um, me personally, I think that's why we have so much admiration for little kids. Not only like the, like the joy they express or like their little giggles or whatnot, but that they're like unabashedly afraid to just walk up to the next person and be like, those pants don't look good on you. Or like, you know, like, or like, hey, I wish I could wear pajamas all day long and just like get away with it, you know, but yeah, but they're also interested in everything mm-hmm. like they saw a grasshopper yesterday, but not this grasshopper today, you know, like that's a completely different grasshopper, yeah. you know. That's so they, they find um, curiosity and they find like uh, energy in, in everything. Mm-hmm. And I think most people say like, um, like, like, I don't want, I don't want to grow up, you know? And if we don't grow up in our mind, if we don't grow up in our spirit and our soul, we can keep that kid energy mm-hmm. and we can keep fascination through everything, even the, the meeting of a, of a person. That's interesting take. What do you think one key to that might be? Because I agree with you. I think people do take time to sort of, distance themselves or maybe they've had an experience enough times to where there's no novelty anymore. You know, so how do you look at that grasshopper differently the second time you see it? You know, I I think you just got to view everything as a miracle, essentially. Like, um, one of my favorite things to say is that like, I don't even take for granted the rising of the sun. Mm. So like every, even, uh, I think we in our society, um, really want to like 
always we're always paddling for that big wave we're always wanting to reach that peak mm-hmm. we're always wanting to to climb world the mountain so others can see us instead of climbing the mountain so we could see the world kind of thing um so i, I think it's noting and rewarding those little successes instead of those big ones so um just waking up every day is, is a beautiful thing like even like the same people that you share space with is a beautiful thing because you know it's not always a guarantee that that will occur and so i think getting the chance to recognize things are around us and that yeah like like a neighbor waving is really cool i um a dog barking is really cool like the sound of a hummingbird flapping is really mm-hmm. really interesting to me 100 percent. yeah speaking of i saw one out in the backyard today and it was just hypnotizing the way the coloration da- dances in the sun they're beautiful creatures right i exactly. took a moment just to take it in you know yeah and when you think about it when you think we're we're just surrounded by you know walls and concrete and roads that were built we, we don't really question how they were built but then also it's just like this world created the nature that we see like the cactuses that are sprouting like it, it's almost so easy to pass them by without being completely fascinated and going up to hug one it's just like well one i've never seen this but at the same time it's like it's such a miracle that we don't have to do anything and it just it just does mm-hmm. it just is yeah, I remember the first time I came west, you know, from the south where you're surrounded by trees and water, it's just huge pine trees and water streams, you know, reservoirs everywhere you go. And I remember driving, I went across Texas, 857 miles from corner to corner or whatever it was. And I remember hitting west Texas and seeing, you know, the terrain get brown and the mountains just these little brown mountain mounds in the background. And it looked like someone had taken a blanket and just laid it down on top of a bunch of odd objects. <laughs> it was cause it was so far enough the distance, they looked smooth, you know? Right. And I remember telling that to my girlfriend at the time, just being so amazed at, Oh, this is such an interesting terrain. You know, I've never experienced it before. And, and today I still, I still think of it that way, but I don't necessarily have that same awe and wonder about it. I do recognize that it's there. However, it's not like the first time, you know, and yeah. I guess it never will be, but, uh, having that sort of childlike spirit, or at least the, the eyes to look at something and say, you know what, maybe I can look at this a different way. I think is, is a, such a valuable skill really. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's completely a lens thing. Like, um, so I come from Denver and, you know, I'm in the Valley of the sun now and my girlfriend is almost like, well, I'm now living a completely I'm living a separate life all through your eyes now. Mm-hmm. So I'm vicariously living through you because she's like, you were just enamored by everything in Arizona. You know, I, I, she, she jokes that I have this alter ego called Manuel <laughs> <laughs> because for some reason, every, every time I see a mountain and I'm so stoked about it, I call it the mountains, baby, look at the mountains. Like, and she just absolutely just joyfully expresses herself. That's great. Like I've never appreciated Arizona until you've helped me appreciate it. And there's, it's interesting because like in the road of life, we, we definitely aren't meant to be separated, you know, like we were talking like with strangers, with, with those that we know we're, we're meant to grow together. So even someone that you share, you know, relationship with can help you see things in a different light as well. hundred percent. So that community too is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Humans are absolute social creatures Mm -hmm. from top to bottom through and through. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about you is, I mean, you're not a young man, but you're not an old man either. (laughs) You're, I think most people who are in their early thirties are still, you know, like partying, you know, are still just sort of 
looking at life from the surface level. And so when we spoke originally, I was impressed by the fact that you brought so much depth to our conversation and you had a wonderful perspective on things and this just really chill energy. And a lot of times when I meet people like that, I'm instantly curious as to their life because I feel like a lot of times those people have had some crazy experiences. And I know that you know, in off mic, when we were doing pre-interview, you were telling me a little bit about some things that started in your life when you were younger. Um, and you'd mentioned an accident that you were involved in with your brother. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could walk us through that and tell us a little bit about what happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, um, our experiences definitely, um, mold and shape who we are. And I think now I look back on it, like you said, not a, not a young man, but not an old man. And just the age that I am, uh, 32, and that everything I've experienced has um, made me who I am. And I definitely view um, there's no coincidence where you are is where you're supposed to be. Now I understand that. Then I didn't. And I, I feel that my story and that accident is definitely indicative of being it, um, it, uh, being asked to handle something before you're far too um, old or far too mediated to want to mm. um so that that accident when i was uh when i was seven uh, a car accident me and my mom and my brother were headed to see my aunt and uncle in ohio and um my mom uh, fell asleep at the wheel uh, we were on a strict timeline to get out there for fourth of july an accident happened on july 3rd and um, that accident ended up uh, taking my brother mm. um and also, um, I was in the middle lap belt and ended up um, causing an extreme abdominal contusion due to the impact of uh, the vehicle. Um, Flight for Life rushed home, that whole thing to Children's Hospital, and then uh, a couple of days later, found out that my brother brother had passed. Now, how old were you and your brother at this point? Um, so, I was seven, and my brother was uh, fifteen. Okay. Yep. Or. Yeah, seven. So actually, uh, just past seven, and my brother was just past fifteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he he passed away at the scene, or it was later. It was later. Yeah. So he had been um, recovered on site, and also rushed in uh, the same helicopter as I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I still experience um, like nightmares. I have like insomnia from that particular event of like, I, I call it like the crash and the sound of the blow, mm-hmm. uh, reaching for my brother's hand, uh, that kind of whole thing just still really sticks with me to this day. So you remember the event? I remember the event, okay. yeah, almost like categorically, like it, it happened, like how it happened. And it literally, not to overuse the term, but it literally haunts me. Mm. And I think it was because kind of how they preface or kind of how they showed in like soap operas where everything's like bright and shiny like it I, that runs through my head uh, quite often but we were um in the same helicopter uh to the same hospital back at home um denver uh flight for life children's hospital and uh he passed out he passed away a few days later wow so what happened with your family dynamic after that point was was were people pretty wrecked after that or, or were you guys able to cope or how did that go? I think, I think it was really not. I think I know it was really tough. I know it was tough on me. I know it was tough on my mom and my dad. Um, my dad absolutely adored my brother, thought he was going to be a uh, baseball star and had all those aspirations for that. He 
loved having a little girl, but his his firstborn son was like his, mm-hmm. you know, the, the breadwinner, right? Pride and joy. The yeah. pride and joy. Yeah. And then my mom was extremely wrecked because she took all the the precedence. She took all the, the blame on herself for being the one um, to uh, not t- to call her out, but ha- as she expressed, to fall asleep at the wheel and, and like let that occur. Mm. And so, yeah, it definitely brought a different family dynamic. And it was something that even at seven, you don't really realize what you know at that age that you know. Yeah. And I didn't realize I was as close to him as I was because it's just something where you wake up. Like I said, we take, we take for granted the rising of the sun. You kind of take for granted that your brother is going to be there. So when you're seven, you're like, oh yeah, video games and Cheetos and macaroni and cheese. And you don't really think that, oh, this person that I admire, that I look up to, that shoots me in the ass with BB guns, <laughs> possibly expire. You know, it, it's, right. it's not a thing you really think about. Wow. It's amazing. So as a, seven plus year old at this point, Mm -hmm. you know, what was your interpretation of that event? Did you internalize anything that is still with you today? Or was it just sort of something that you can kind of see as an observer at this point? I think, I think it's both. I internalized it and, um, now I observe it. Mm. So I I internalized it because I didn't realize, really realize what it was going to be like growing up without a brother. And like seeing not only those around me and friends that I know have like siblings and everything like that, but just the fact that I didn't, um, I, I don't, I don't want to say like didn't have that anymore, but couldn't experience that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the most um, trying for me was to recognize that now sitting here at 32, my brother would be 40 mm-hmm. and wow, how easy would it be? Or now I think of it to just call him up and be like, I'm sure you'd have like a, a wife and, and maybe a kid, you know, and might not live in Arizona, but may live in Pennsylvania or something like that. But all the conversations that you miss out on, you don't really think about that until you gain perspective of it and, and you, you grow relationships with other people. And then you realize how devastating it would be if something like that were gone. It's almost like a butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. Because when you're younger at seven, I remember internalizing it. And I remember that it was mostly laced with, because I wore a full body cast. Because um, in that accident, I also broke my back as, along with the abdominal contusion. Wow. So I had a full body cast. So then when you were younger, it was only, it was like a nostalgia. Or it was like you were like a, like a fixture, kind of. So I remember all my friends like, oh, how cool, you're Superman now. And like knocking on my body cast. Mm-hmm. So I never, I don't really think I ever had that opportunity to actually like process what, what had occurred mm. when I was younger. Oh yeah. I never thought about that, but like you're, so like you went from one event to the next without necessarily. And of course it's, I mean, it's seven years old. I mean, what, what can you expect from a seven year old child as well? Exactly. Mentally, yeah. right? But Mentally. Yeah. But you went from one event, one, one event to the next without having a moment to really understand the impact yeah, and I think it was an impact thing and, like, uh, not necessarily a lack of processing, mm-hmm. but like you said, the mentality of a seven-year-old at that time mm-hmm. is not about processing. Right. Like, I could, be, I could be honest with you and just honest in this space that I don't ever really remember grieving as a seven-year-old. Right. Um, I don't know if that was understood that I was able to do that. Sure. Or that another day came and maybe go play or, you know, I, I can't really remember how that occurred but I know that it was it was difficult yeah I I think a lot of times when a tight-knit group like a family experiences something like this 
you as a group, you find ways to become stronger or you find exits, you know, mm-hmm. and, th- and things sort of disintegrate. So you really have one of the, one of those two paths. There's really no idling in that moment. You know, what was it like for your family after that was processed, you know, for the adults and you had, I'm assuming buried your brother at this point, your father got the news, you know, what was the next step for your family? I think it was the next step could only have been growth, but I think there was a lot of stagnation there um, that was experienced. And I think it was just, now I get this, everything I'm saying, I'm talking from a lens of understanding and a lot of um, meditation and growth and, and self introspection is that then having a kid, which, which I don't have, um, it's hard to create that kinship again when your relationship, I know a lot of married couples and then they have children. Now their relationship is defined by their kid and not necessarily defined by themselves. Mm-hmm. So once you learn, lose a child, I'm sure the kinship, the romance, the, you know, maybe the memories that you shared were all not only based on when you met, but also based on a portion of that uh, connection, especially if you, you know, if it's like a pizza pie or something like that now, some of those slices are missing. Mm. For sure. For sure. Was your, was your, is this the point at which, uh, your father ended up leaving? Uh, no, or was this it much later? It was much later. So that was at seven, a uh, little bit later than seven. So I could just call it seven to eight, just okay. like a good kind of like, um, not ratio, but just, um, uh, age, age range. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad left when I was 12. Okay. All right. So was that time period, did you notice a difference in your parents' relationship from that seven to 12 years? Did you know, could you tell that he was sort of getting to that place where he felt like he wanted to withdraw or? I, th- I think he was getting a little distant, but okay. I didn't really, I didn't really know. I mean, uh, sports were still occurring. I still played baseball religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I remember, my studies were still, I, I guess if you study when you're seven, I, th- I think my studies were still on par. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a lot of, a lot of grievances. And I think, I think my mother and my father, both experienced a little disconnect due to that um, experience or due to that event. Yeah, for sure. I can't imagine what it would have been like as a child to, to, to lose, you know, a sibling, A, and then C, those around you have to deal with it and then not really know as a child if you have the capacity to process it or if you're processing it or, you know, if it's going to come back to haunt you later. I, I, I've never experienced that at all. Yeah, right. It seems like a, a really tough spot to be in. Did your, uh, did your, did your, does your mom ever talk about the event? I mean, because you said that she felt some guilt around that. She she feels guilt. Um, she doesn't really talk about it much. I think um, over the, I guess the theme of processing or a lack thereof, mm-hmm. I think she still struggles with the processing of it, um, which I, I can't say I wouldn't either. Um, but I think she definitely struggles. I, I personally don't think she ever really recovered from it. And I think she holds a lot of resentment, a lot of guilt. Um, both my mother and father, I, again, this is empathetic and sympathetic towards them, um, have that same type of um, mentality towards it is where they both were never, never really the same, which I can't blame them for. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I, I, man, it just seems like such a, a tough situation to manage. I mean, I, I think 
it would be difficult. I'm just trying to put myself in your father's shoes and your mother's shoes. I think it would be difficult for me not to want to assign blame and create problems where there were none. You know what I mean? Right. Instead of, I mean, obviously you'd want to create the empathetic situation and, and deal with it, but there's got to be a part of you that that's holding some anger around, you know, the person that you claim to have committed your life to, you know? Exactly. Yeah, because again, not through any experience of my own, but just through understanding, I'm sure there's that 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 coddling or that nestling, and, and you look at an individual that you that you grew a, a seed in them, and, and you instilled them these values and these virtues and and everything, and, and for that to just be taken away after you know the the work you've put in, and mm-hmm. and uh, again, I, I I think they both shared so many memories with, with that individual too. For sure, yeah. Is to then <clears throat> look back on those memories and, and yeah, with, without a lack of processing, I'm sure it's tough. Yeah, and your, I mean, your story is just off the charts insane, man, because, you know, you had this experience with your brother and then it. I think you mentioned a couple of years later you had a similar experience with your sister. Yeah, so I, I get choked up kind of when I talk about, but um, so my brother passed away and I used the age range of seven to eight and then... Um, three to four, again, age range. Um, years later, my sister passed away in a car accident mm. um, just by herself. She was traveling. And if my br- my mother placed the blame on herself uh, for my brother's death, my father placed the blame on himself for my sister's passing mm. uh, because a week before her accident um, in December, she, he had actually helped her or came up with the majority of the funds to help her purchase the car. And this conversation is coming from a lens of putting myself in their shoes now. Um, but then it was, it was very difficult for me to process. Um, recovering from my brother's passing and then noting that my sister had passed then was, was really challenging. And then I was older at that time as well. And then I'd also gone through those feelings and those experiences with my brother. Mm-hmm. Is that that really threw me in a... Um, um, very toxic loop of um, therapy and 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 writing and trying to process and, and trying to not only was that a difficult time but trying to ask myself and ask the the world like why is this occurring and, and trying to view it in, in, a, in a light such as that yeah for sure was this uh, the point at, at which you began writing regularly was this uh you know, maybe an assignment given to you due to therapy? Was that, was that kind of how it came to be? It was, yeah. So writing, um, I wouldn't say I found writing, but writing found me mm. more or less. And I remember being in therapy when I was younger. And um, I kind of view my writing or my style of writing as someone that just discovers a guitar in like a thrift shop and then just picks it up and just learns to play through feel. Mm-hmm. Like I was never formally taught writing. I just always know... Uh, like you said, I had like a like a deeper soul when you met me. I was always a kid that liked to take apart the Game Boy instead of actually playing the Game Boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was always the one that was more excited <laughs> for the bookmobile to come than than was for like free taco oh, day the or whatever. Oh, bookmobile, <laughs> dude! I totally remember that. Yeah, that scratched that from my memory until yeah. you just said the word. Yeah, <laughs> bookmobile—that's a word I haven't heard in ages. Yeah. Wow. So I remember the traveling books, and I remember um, up until twelve, I had read a thousand books. Mm. So. Part of my ostracization was my self-ostracization is that I was I was the nerdy reader. I was always the one that really was always like 
questioning the way like things worked and like, well, why do I go do homework? I'm not working on my home, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like I was always like the, <laughs> the real like uh, defiant one that wanted to know why, why things worked. Mm-hmm. And so um, learning those, that writing, mm-hmm. that tactic just kind of came to me instinctually. And I remember um, that when I was going to therapy, the uh, individual and please don't ask remember the name like now at this time like <laughs> you would think they were fundamental in my life and they totally were but at the time it was an assignment so it wasn't someone you remember like your first grade teacher miss brownlee like you know right that kind of thing right of course and i remember them saying like well um catharsis or it's very um helpful to journal or to write and i think during this time maybe you know write a poem or, or, or write a or write a section such as that I remember coming back like a week later to therapy and I had presented my first poem, which was about my brother's passing. Mm-hmm. And at, at 12, I don't really know how you're supposed to be able to write or who's looking at your writing, but I remember them saying like, you're a really good writer. And they might say that to everyone, like, let's be honest. Sure. But they, they instilled the seed in me that actually made me believe that, that I do have something special. And from that point on, I just, I kept writing and kept writing poetry kept putting my words on paper and I haven't stopped since mm. it's become, become a fixture in my life. Did you have a desire at that point to pursue writing or was it more of just a hobby at that point in time? It was, it was more a hobby. So kind of what we were talking um, about spoken word, it was something to where I, I kind of buried it mm-hmm. and it was just something like, like a cathartic means and something to where I enjoyed kind of getting out of my head I enjoyed that society told me to act this way. And I was like, well, Daniel, he can create his own imagination through his own <laughs> words. He can, he can make the words come to life how he, how he wants them to. Yeah, for sure. And so this was at the, in your early teens, like the 10, 11, 12? Yeah, this, was, this was at this? 12. I, I started therapy um, when I was 10, but I really remember writing um, uh, 10 to 11 because my sister passed. Uh, four years after my brother, right. so right around that age range, and I remember starting therapy then, and then really um, launching into writing after um, right about twelve. Mm-hmm. After another um, really indicative and trying event in my life. Yeah, and was that a po- the point at which uh, you said your father decided to exit the situation? Yeah. So kind of what we were talking about um, with before with like the kinship and creating that matrimony mm-hmm. and the sinistral energy you share as like a couple. Um, I definitely noticed it dwindling from eight on to nine on to ten. And then after ten, it was just absolutely non-existent. And again, from an empathetic lens, vicariously trying to live through my parents' shoes, I can't say I absolutely blame my mother or my father. Um, but at that time, at 12, that's when my parents got divorced. And then I remember my dad um, dropping me off at daycare, leaving, and um, literally, not figuratively, not, you know, um, spicing up words, like never coming back. Oh, but you weren't, did he prepare you for that at all? Or you'd had no conversation about that? No conversation, no awareness, wow. no ideology other than now talking to you here and just understanding that, you know, things change. Um, kinship is, is less lessened. And, and how do you possibly share that romance? How do you possibly share that love with one um, son or daughter passing away? How do you possibly share that with two? passing away and then finding love and finding that again, I'm sure it's very, very challenging. Yeah, Um, for sure. So at what point did it sink in for you that your father 
had checked out that he was he was not coming back. I think my, my mom remembers telling me that every single day because my dad was a traveling salesman, so it was known to me that he would be gone for weeks at a time, traveling like the Montana's, Idaho, Wyoming. He sold like little trinkets, little unique like candles and um, little uh, odds and ends for your home. He was very successful at it. He could. I always used to say you could sell a lady with white gloves a cherry popsicle. <laughs> so I think, I think that's where I get some of my demeanor from. Not think. I know I get, that get, that's, yeah. that's where I get some of my demeanor from because I remember traveling him with him when I was younger oh, yeah. and just seeing him interact with people. And, and he was so interested and so fascinated by other humans mm-hmm. that I think it instilled a little in me as well. Um, but he, um, my mom vividly remembers me going to the window every single night and just checking and looking out, wow. looking out the window and just waiting for his, his car to pull up. And That's then time continued and then he, he never returned. Mm. But you never had a conversation about it. It just sort of happened and you were there in the moment and had to make up a story about how you felt about it, I guess. Yeah. My dad, uh, again, he would drop me off at daycare every morning and then my mom would come pick me up. So it wasn't, it wasn't unique scenario or anything that my mom came and it was just another day. Right. Right. And, um, <laughs> I'm almost at a loss or like how, how that occurs, but yeah. And then, um, week, you don't really think about it, you know, kind of like when you haven't talked to a friend for like a month or something, you kind of like, Oh, I got busy on this Monday and then this Wednesday happened. And then you look at it like a month, a year, two mm-hmm. years down the road. Yeah. It's interesting that it's interesting the way that that happened because, you know, everyone knows a story or has seen a movie where something like this happens. Right. And it's always this over dramatic, you know, sort of over the top experience where everyone has this moment of, you know, just anger and tension and all these emotions. Right. But then in the real world, it was just kind of blah. It was just kind of nothingness. It was, it was very blah. Yeah. And and I, I feel guilty saying that. Because it, it doesn't register, it doesn't kick in until maybe a month later or maybe two months later, and you're you're just like, one, how, how do you get on? You know, you're, you're just recovering from the loss of, of two siblings. Mm-hmm. Your mom is an absolute total wreck, and then now your dad is left. So now you know right then and there that you're going to have to carry the torch, torches, the man of the house. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to, like you said, like an old soul, soul you're gonna have to grow up earlier than you expected and now you you have to console this lady and now you have to to be the one to um essentially move into that role while now you're young and innocent and and you're trying to um um, process that and you're you're trying to understand why as well sure do you remember as a as a teenager i guess at this point you know that relationship changing the way that it did, and, and, and do you remember taking on that role or, or making a conscious decision to take on that role? I remember taking on that role without knowing I took on that role because mm-hmm. uh, now, up until I moved out to Arizona, I, I've been living on my own all around, uh, I want to say the world. I lived in Cambodia for a little while, but all around the U.S. and everything like that. But um, my relationship has grown with my mom tenfold, absolutely. Um, but unbeknownst to me that I would have to take that role, um, cause especially in that time, it was like where I was going through my angsty years, mm-hmm. but then now I'm expected to grow up. But then also I was extremely defiant cause I didn't really believe in authority and authoritative figures. 
And then at that point, after all that's happening, then you're just like, everything's a total lie anyway. So what's yeah. the point of believing in anything? That's really hard for smart people. And like you said earlier, you had read, what you say, a thousand books or something like that by mm-hmm. the time you were 12, 13 years old? Yep. I mean, that's more books than most people will read in an entire lifetime. I'd say 99% of the people will never read that in an entire lifetime. So you're going to school, you're being educated by people who probably have less education than you do at this point. And so as a smart individual, it's very difficult to sort of, you know, make that add up. You know, what, what can I learn from this individual who hasn't had the same experiences or consumed the same information or even thought or created a perspective like I've had to create, you know? I remember thinking like that when I was a kid and I read nowhere near as many books as you did. (laughs) I may have read one, you know, but just being empathetic enough to pay attention to what's going on, I think is very difficult when you, when you're a smart individual and you see how the system is set up to basically corral people and, you know, create obedient workers is really what, you know, like school and early childhood is about. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, we're talking like my, my nomadic nature Mm -hmm. is through that lens too, is that like, I don't really, believe in the system very much right and i know that when i was younger i definitely didn't believe in the system for sure and you know i remember my report cards were all like u's and s's <laughs> and everything like that and i was like i was like this guy's going nowhere you know unsatisfactory yeah unsatisfactory yeah. absolutely That's so funny but it's just because like i even now have a hard time with it like i don't like being told what to do i'd rather do my own thing mm-hmm. and at that time especially i was just kind of like well, nothing exists. Nothing is real. If this can be taken from me, and like you said, like you, you've only seen this in movies. Mm-hmm. If this is actually going to occur to me, then really, what can I not do that isn't actually reality? Yeah, it's just crazy, man. So I'm, I'm curious now to to learn a little bit more about your first book, the book titled "A Beautiful Mind in an Ugly Place." You were talking about how you were impacted in the uh, initial auto accident with mm-hmm. your mother and your brother yep. and how that made some damage to your abdomen. Yep. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and then take us to that point in your life where you're going into that first surgery for that? Okay. So that same uh, accident that we alluded to earlier, um, I was um, with my brother uh, headed to Ohio and I was in the middle lap belt or sorry, the middle seat with a, with a lap belt. And due to the, the force of the accident, due to the impact um, causes, um, me to fracture my L2, 3, and 4, uh, but then also an abdominal contusion of my small intestinal wall. And so when I was seven, I had um, emergency surgery to find or deduce or to eradicate, rather, a um, abdominal um, a herniation of the abdominal area, mm-hmm. um, but also... Um, my abdominal wall exploding rather from, from the growth, from that impact and from it only being impacted on one side and from it gr- like growing through your intestinal lining and, and getting enlarged. Um, so from that surgery, um, I had that surgery when I was seven um, to remove a portion of my abdominal as well as um, um, fix or I want to use the word install, but now I feel like a machine uh, <laughs> plastic or artificial vertebrae in my L2, 3, and 4. And um, from from that surgery, when I was 21 to 25, I underwent separate abdominal surgeries, um, four, which would be a total of five from my surgery. And that's where um, A Beautiful Mind and Ugly Place came in. 
Mm. So take us through that that time period. I understand that you talk a little bit about a pretty difficult experience that you had. Um, you became suicidal at one point, and you know maybe take us through what you're experiencing and that you know that ultimate attempt that you made on your own life. Okay. Yeah. So at that time, you know, we always think where we are is. I say where we are is where we're supposed to be, but at times we think where we are is the greatest we're ever going to have it. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we feel like we've reached our peak. We feel like we've kind of reached that echelon rather. And I remember at the time during these surgeries, I was a um, successful personal trainer. Um, I had a smoking hot girlfriend. I was living with two of my best friends and we had purchased uh, a house together um, in the North Glen community just outside of Thornton. I was going to school. Um, I had lots of clients, you know, I had a motorcycle, I had a car, like all these things that you, you had think, all the like, stuff. I had all the things, you know, <laughs> and I was, I was doing all of the things. Right. And we, we kind of think when we're living like that, like that's how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I remember at 24 too, um, when this, when this book was produced is I also, um, got some news of my father that was very detrimental. So I, I categorized that and cataloged that all. And then with those surgeries, um, kind of what I expressed with my life story, I, I found myself as the victim, not really the victor. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I was scratching an unhill, uphill battle. Um, my mom has often called me Sisyphus. Um, kind of like always pushing, pushing the stone the, up the hill. Always pushing the stone up the hill and it's always rolling on top of me. Yeah. And it never is metaphorically more true that I, I just feel like I'm always trying to get somewhere, always paddling for that perfect wave and then just getting whitewashed. And when I was 24, so what I expressed is that I thought I was kind of, to not overuse the, the phrase, but I thought I was on top of the world. I really did. And it just completely knocked me off my pedestal, like completely threw me rock bottom. Um, so I had gone from 21 to 24, to which at 21, I had my first abdominal surgery from when I was seven from an overgrowth of scar tissue. And you think at that time, that's going to be your only one. And then like a year later, you go back in and the same symptoms, you're back into another surgery. And we all know we've all had surgeries or we've all experienced those with surgeries. After you cut into that tissue, you cut into the body like that, it takes a while for it to heal. So it's not 100%. And then you cut into it again, and then it takes a while to heal. And then it's not 100%. I kind of jokingly say this, but it's true that I feel like I lost five years of my life. Cause I spent five years of my life in a hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember that I had my fifth and final surgery at this time. Um, when I was 24, I had got some news about my dad. I had lost the house that I was living in um, because I wasn't able to pay for it. I had lost all my clients. And um, life just really wasn't working for me. And the girl that I was dating, come to find out, she was cheating on me with my best friend who... <laughs> I moved in that house with on his birthday of all things. And I had sent him like a nice sentimental card and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, between me and you and, and, um, the audience is just, I felt like I couldn't do anything right. I felt like I was stepping up to the plate and I felt like every single time I missed mm-hmm. and, you know, life was throwing me curveballs, It was throwing me sliders. And, you know, we joked about this earlier. I'm a fastball hitter, you know, <laughs> always have been. I could always turn. I'm, I'm a right-handed hitter. I could always turn on a fastball mm-hmm. over left field fence. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't manage to hit these balls that were being thrown at me. And so, um, 
I, I took everything that I had experienced. I took everything that I tried to do. I took all all of, of life's tri- trials and tribulations. I tried to take lessons and everything. And I kind of more or less told myself that I wasn't meant to carry this fine china. It's just getting too heavy and just kind of more or less let my, let it, um, let it, let it crash, let it fall. And so what did you, what did you decide was going to be your outcome at this point? Um, you know, when you, when someone says that they are suicidal or they're going to make an attempt on their life, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious as to the process that leads someone to that place. But also like, there's this dark side of me that's curious about how did you choose the method? You know, mm-hmm. why did you choose this or that or the other thing? What was your poison in this moment? Right. And looking back on it, I, I can't quite justify it um, because we've talked about how I was expected to be the man and I'm overseeing and um, facilitating and caring for my mother. So my caring nature at that point was to lock the door mm-hmm. <laughs> like she wasn't going to have to see it or she wasn't going to have to discover it. Mm-hmm. So it was when I was living with my mom. And um, so due to my abdominal surgeries, I had at my I had at my um, disposal a bevy of um, Percocets, Vicodins, Dilaudid, mm-hmm. um, as well as, you know, every single thing that Western medicine hands you these days to handle. So now I'm taking um, painkillers. Now I have to take a anti-digestant or whatever to, to process the painkillers that are extremely harsh on my stomach. And now I have to down Pepto-Bismol because my, you know, it's just, it's just a wicked cycle. So mm-hmm. basically my suicide attempt was to lock myself in a room, um, dress myself in all white, like some symbolism that maybe, you know, someone, somewhere, some entity, some deity would be willing to accept me for the things I've done mm-hmm. and recognize the things that I haven't and maybe see me as a, as a holy individual or someone that deserves to, um, you know, I, I can't say where we go in this life, but deserves to go where we eventually end up and um, take a handful, everything that was left in each and every bottle that I had at my disposal, as well as every two hours on the hour, um, Advil or ibuprofen rather, which they say to take eight maximum in 24 hours. And in a four hour period, I took 32. Jesus Christ, man. Along with, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, Vicodin and the Percocet. And then at the time I was 24, so old enough to buy alcohol. And then I know the, um, toxicity and I know the general disaster that you could create by mixing it with fermented molasses. And I bought a handle of Captain Morgan. Uh, so a handle of Captain Morgan, uh, 32 uh, ibuprofen, and then just a bevy. I call it a wicked cocktail of just every painkiller imaginable. Wow, it's amazing. I, I'm t- that's just that's so much to you know ingest at one time, even over a short period of time. You um, obviously survived. So I did. <laughs> take us take us down that road. Like what uh, what was the ultimate outcome? How did we how do we end up with Daniel sitting across from us today? So we end up with the Daniel sitting across from us today because it, it taught me perspective is what it taught me. So waking up that day on December 17th, because I, I attempted on December 16th, um, was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. So um, I had expressed that I was a personal trainer at the time, and I thought I was on top of the world. 
and I, I truly was essentially now I'm 32. I feel better than I have felt in my entire life. Um, but I had gone to bed at like 185 and I woke up at like 125. What? So it, yeah, really? completely emaciated. Like I almost grant my life to my fitness, to my, my, um, eating to my nutritional health because I know for a fact my body and my musculature had had processed all of the t- all of what I had ingested throughout the night and actually saved me. Mm. Um, so I woke up and I, I was I was pale white and I was bone thin. Um, even when I eventually made it to the mirror, which took me three hours to get across the hallway, um, I I looked down at the sink, splashed my face with water, and I looked up and my shoulder blades were jutting out above. Uh, like my deltoid area and this happened in 24 hours in the span of or not even like yeah. overnight overnight yeah uh, this doesn't even seem possible it, it doesn't it, it's it's absolutely um i don't even want to i don't want to say insane it's it's absolutely unbelievable mm. um but what your body can do and how your body can process amazing and, and what it can recognize and, and how like our white blood cells and our red blood cells are working for us and how they're constantly just a symphony of brilliance going on behind our skin and our organs and our tissues that are constantly promoted and constantly devoted to our survival and our well-being. Mm-hmm. And I have no doubt that, that my body, all, all the cells and tissues and, and everything, I, I definitely embellished and exaggerated at 125, um, you know, like 60 pounds. But like 145, 155, like I was emaciated, I was pale, mm-hmm. um, and I I definitely lost that weight, and had gone and and my body processed that foreign contaminant overnight for me. Amazing, it's amazing. Did you have to seek medical attention at this point, or or no? I did. So one of the first things I did um, after I woke up or after I came to, and I realized that um, I was still living. Um, because Colorado during, during the winter time, sunny out, saturated, like an Instagram filter, you know, I didn't really realize <laughs> what had occurred before it had occurred. Um, but I remember kind of waking up, not too sure where I was, um, difficulty to, difficult to even raise my head off the pillow to even, to even come to a log roll, to even come to a seated position. And I remember, um, finding finding difficulty with what had occurred but recognizing where I was and recognizing I was still in my bed and um first thing I did was um grab my phone call my mom let her know what had occurred uh, I was very upfront and very very vocal about it mm-hmm. and let her know that I needed um assistance let her let her know I needed help and that I needed to go to go to a specialist well wow. so you know, looking back on that experience now, obviously, I'm sure you have a myriad of different perspectives, but, you know, emerging from that then, you know, in in your 20s, you know, what were your immediate thoughts? Did you feel like you had, you know, gained some sort of purpose or, you know, been given some sort of gift, like a lot of people say? I felt like I was actually to, to be really cliche and, and kind of, kind of punny, like 50 Cent says, <laughs> you know, like I was shot... 40 times and still breathing. I'm here for a reason kind yeah. of thing. And, uh, my friends would always point that song out when it came on, you know, <laughs> like, you know you're, you're still, you're breathing. And I know now, like, uh, 
I've known this, but expressing this now, I, I know that waking up after that, after that attempt, that I'm definitely here for a reason mm-hmm. and that I, I have more beautiful things to bring and that I wasn't intended to go then. Right. And that day wasn't essentially um, full of perspective. It wasn't full of um, meaning or, or, or purpose, but it was what I experienced after that attempt that brought me more perspective and more focus towards my life mm. and let me realize like 50 cent like i'm not done yet right right yeah dude that is crazy interesting stuff like uh, i can't even imagine waking up after all of that consumption a and then and then b just being able to walk much less you know use a phone and and, and call for help and all the rest of this stuff but I mean, when I think of what that must have been like, and again, it's just my imagination running away with the situation. I think that, you know, this is the point like where you're saying the cliche comes into play. It's like now you've seen the light sort of thing. You have this purpose. But legitimately, how long after that event did you feel, or A, how long did it take you to feel normal again? And B, you know, when you talk about having a purpose, was one delivered to you after that event or are you still um, developing what that might be or did that come to you through some act of journaling or writing or self-reflection? Right. Yeah. So I think I'm still developing my purpose every day and it's getting stronger and stronger. But one of the main things that I learned and that I uncovered in this whole process was I was, um, I know you initially asked about my book, Beautiful Mind in an Ugly Place. And it's all my firsthand perspective with the suicide attempt, but also being in a mental institution for the first time. And I think then I learned more about myself and other people than I'd ever given the world credit for. And by that, I mean, is I often phrase it this way, is that a bucket full of misfits essentially saved this misfit. And I always knew I was a misfit, kind of what we talked about, like, wanting to take apart the Game Boy, reading a thousand books, um, definitely defining in society. Mm. But I didn't recognize it until I was thrust into that environment. And being amongst people that, you know, we were joking earlier with the pre-interview that like I wouldn't necessarily sell a, sell a, uh, share a Coke and a pancake, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, like like a like a brunch or an outing with, but sure. that had, had taught me more in perspective and in in passing that I realized I was, I was being granted. So you went into a mental institution post suicide attempt. Correct. I'm assuming, you know, to, to, to have someone keep an eye on you and make exactly. sure that you're stable yeah. at this point. It was a, it was a seven day, seven day deal. Yep. And you know, when you're talking about the misfits who shaped the misfit, you know, like that, that seems a bit odd. And so I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what you mean by that. Like, you know, did you meet characters in there that that helped shape who you were in that moment? Or, you know, was there, was it something going on that, you know, maybe underneath the surface that was bubbling within you that they brought out of you? I think it was a little bit of both, to be honest. I, I feel like one, because I remember my book actually came through the fact that I was a misfit in the mental institution. As I remember, I journaled for the entire seven days. I went through an entire um, five-star notepad mm. and had to ask the front desk staff for another one. Um, so I, I just sat in the corner and I just tried to process. And I think what it helped me do is I, I had no responsibilities other than 
you know, quote unquote, staying alive. (laughs) That's, that sounds so funny to say, but like, like my mom came to visit me every day and so did my friends, but all I had to do was just be, and just be present. Mm -hmm. Um, But with the misfits, one thing I learned and one thing that's, that's fundamental to me. And I still carry that with me every day is that whether it's the homeless individual on the street or whether it's your best friend calling you, I think that's so ultimately precious is that people just want to be, want to be heard and just want to be listened to. And in the mental institution, I was amongst some of the most beautiful minds that I've ever been um, invested with, that I've ever shared conversation with, ever shared space with. Mm -hmm. And there were people in there, there was this lady named Susan who, you know, we were talking about picking up a guitar, picking up a pen and learning how to write, who played the piano, like the most beautiful, like, you talk about America's Got Talent. They need to bring their cameras in there and just <laughs> just film her. Really? You know? And, it's like and a prodigy. A, a prodigy. And those are the people that are told that, you know, they get a, a C- minus on their math test. But have they ever seen them play the piano, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that is true brilliance. Right. And there was this guy named Tom that had this idea. And he's like, hey, man, you ever seen those refrigerated trucks that are always running around? I was like, yeah, all the time. He's like... We also know there's like lakes and rivers and, you know, like, like pipes and systems that go underneath the ground. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know, like for the most part, he's like, what if he was serious about this too, which was, which was really cool. He's like, what if we save gas and we save all like the, the devastation of those like semis and refrigerated trucks, like on our earth and on the asphalt. And we shan't, we send shipped goods and frozen goods through those pipes and like, and now we just fish them out in a lake. And I'm like, Tom, probably won't work, man. But that, the fact you think of that is like extremely brilliant. Yeah, that's interesting, man. And it, it, and it was cool because it was people that weren't afraid to be people. Right, right. And again, I can't say that I would ever be like Friday night, hey, mm-hmm. Tom, what, what are you doing, man? You know, you want to let's go hang out. Yeah, let's go. Let's go grab a burger. Let's go investigate that idea. Know? Let's go. Let's go investigate. You know, yeah. hey, hey, man, you got your scuba gear on. Let's <laughs> let's go see how far we can get to the bottom of this <laughs> lake. You know, right, right. But to on to to speak to speak in in honesty and in tongues, like he he actually taught me, right. And and Susan taught me, and uh, there was a kid named Jonathan. He was seventeen. Susan was like seventy, and Jonathan was like seventeen. Mm-hmm. And and Jonathan was someone who just needed to be told. That I, that I think he existed in the world. He was so unsure of himself. He like hadn't grown into his bones yet. He, you know, he needed a little reassurance. And I remember when I first got there, he was hesitant to talk to me. And by the end of the seventh day, we we're playing games together. It's amazing. You know, so he taught me and I taught him. And, and I literally mean when I say like these misfits that everyone has, has ostracized and no one has, has called and no one has given the time of day, gave me the time of day. Right. And I gave them the time of day and we, we both shared that. Yeah, that's amazing. Sounds like a really interesting experience, you know, like uh, you always see uh, movies or TV shows about mental institutions and, you know, crazy people flinging poo at each other kind of a thing. You exactly. know? Like it's, yeah. It sounds pretty chill, actually. It, it was really chill. There was just a common area. And then mm-hmm. almost what it was is like a if you've ever been in college and then there's dorms that are kind of shared with like a main common room and like like a like a dinner hall mm-hmm. and so like the dinner hall there was breakfast lunch and dinner every day and then there was a common room 
with with a with a TV that played the same thing over and over and over, like a rusty little VHS that had like the VHS lines yeah, on it. You yeah. know? And there was a piano, and there was a front desk, and it was it was really simplified board games. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an outside, but you couldn't access it. But there was a like a sliding porch area, and you could you could see outside. You could see the you know the sunshine and the snow falling. Stuff like that, but it, it was really simplified. There wasn't a whole lot of Hollywood antics to it. Yeah, no antics. Yeah, for sure. It's amazing how we can buy into some of the things that we see with no experience of them. Just someone's, you know, someone's interpretation or perspective of a story that they heard that they embellished upon. You know, who who knows how many times over, and then that becomes the zeitgeist, what everyone believes, and you know, around a mental institution. I feel like that's one of those things that carries a big stigma because of things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Really. And there is, there's a massive stigma behind it because like you said, the zeitgeist or based on the stereotypes that we understand and the wives tales that we've been told mm-hmm. about places that we've never even visited. Not that you want to, I never knew I wanted to, but I'm forever grateful that I have for sure. And to use that stigma, I mean, it's like we have fun runs for, you know, um, cancers and we have fun runs for you know alzheimer's and everything which is which is a beautiful and brilliant thing to bring awareness mm-hmm. but i don't remember the last one someone told me they're running a 5k for bipolar disorder no definitely not it's not sexy enough yeah interesting exactly. so the a beautiful mind in an ugly place was book number one that was book number one correct. and then what came next for you and then the next one so after publishing this one it was just a matter of you know a lot of people ask like as far as publishing like i I was actually asked to speak at my high school after I published this book. Mm-hmm. And even um, my gym teacher who asked me to speak there was like, I never thought you'd publish a book. I was like, hey, me and you both, brother. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this came out of just uh, just a time and, and just a need, I suppose. Sure. But people ask, you know, how long did it take you to publish this book? Like, what went into the book? And I just woke up every day and that was just like kind of what spoke to me. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of formatting it, a matter of getting it out there. Like I said, a matter of destigmatizing mental institutions, a matter of um, destigmatizing ostracization, a matter of destigmatizing bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. a matter of just sharing my story. Right. You know, I, I fully believe if I impact one person that it was fully worth all the time that I spent writing that book and creating that time and that space for it. Yeah, 100%, man. 100%. Uh, yeah, but there, there was one book that came out, and, you know, I told you in the pre-interview that there's those that I know that when the book came out, they ostracized me, mm-hmm. you know, they couldn't believe that I would speak on behalf of something like that, or that I would be so candid. Ostracized you because you were being honest about your experience or some yeah, other reason? Because it was a suicide attempt. Uh-huh. Um, because I, you know, I, I, everything in the book is everything I experienced. There's, there's no censorship. There's no, there's no editing to protect those that, that happen to read it. There's no, you know, um, everything is, is very real mm-hmm. and very ethereal. And then there's those that knew me and then they didn't even know my story. Right. They didn't know I've, I've undergone such um, events like that. And then those that didn't even know I had, I had a suicide attempt mm-hmm. and had recovered from it and had spent my time in a place such as this. Uh, so it opened a lot of doors for you to communicate, you know, with people who obviously have an opportunity to impact, which I think was, you know, one of the main purposes behind creating it, I'm, I'm guessing. It did. It brought me to my high school. It brought me in front of the microphone even more mm-hmm. uh, because I was able to share my spoken word, but I was also sh- able to share my story. Mm-hmm. And in front of the spoken word, again, bucket full of misfits, like a lot of poets, a lot of creatives, 
they're honestly the ones that have been cast aside. They're the ones that quote unquote think too much or they're the ones that, that, you know, they don't have a job or, you know, when are you really going to grow up, you know? And then they truly are the ones that understood what I had gone through. And they're the ones that wanted to hear more about my story. And they were the ones that wanted to hear spoken word about uh, this type of, of scenario. Mm -hmm. And so I think where I was, was, was exactly where I needed to be. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely something to that. I mean, the whole idea of misfits, I think that, you know, like I said earlier, there's just something that people understand on, on a certain level that maybe the masses don't. And when you can separate yourself and, and see the system that you occupy from a third party perspective, it changes everything. And it, it creates a little bit of, I think, distrust of a, of a quote unquote system, mm-hmm. but also it creates a little bit of separation from that reality for most people in that, you know, you can, you know, be this individual sort of over here observing and you can play in that world, but you also understand there's another world over here that those people will never see mm-hmm. because they're not willing to separate or, you know, take the blue pill or whatever kind of a thing, you know? Exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. And what I had said in the pre-interview too, is I think, I truly think we're drugging our profits and our healers. Mm-hmm. And I think our, I think our healers are the ones that are thinking creatively. Yeah. The ones that are wanting to figure out how to change things, the ones that are, that are, that are enacting their thoughts mm-hmm. and the ones that are more or less, yeah, in the corner. <laughs> Definitely. Be- because they've been put there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they didn't want to take the blue pill. That's right. For but sure. I, I think it's funny how we think as a society, it's sane to have a nine to five job, wake up every day, do the same thing <laughs> over and over in a monotonous rut. Right. But then again, being a nomadic, being one that like just kind of creates their um, their essence or creates their destiny, those are the ones that aren't seen clearly. Truly, truly. And, and when you when we were on this conversation earlier, you actually reminded me of a thought. I think that that way of living, that quote unquote nomadic lifestyle, that freedom lifestyle, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. You know, it's when you're working that regular job, you get that regular check. You pay those regular bills, you have that regular house, you know, and things are pretty good. And, and, and to get from pretty good to great is a long road because you have to disconnect from all that. Mm-hmm. And that's where you operate from the space of freedom where it's like, you know what? I may not get a check this week. Yeah. I've got to go hunt and fish for myself, you know? And uh, that's one of the reasons I love the world of entrepreneurship because it's so unpredictable and uh, it, it can be addictive in a lot of ways. But um, the freedom that comes with that, I think a lot of times people forget, comes with equal parts responsibility. Because, you know, if I don't, if I don't find that sale or, you know, if I don't build that business, then I'm not going to eat. Right. And when you realize that's the reality that you live in, it makes something like finding a job, you know, it's like, well, it's no big deal. I can always get a job. Right. Exactly. It sort of lessens the importance of it. And I, th- I think that's why we grew immediately too, because I know you are an entrepreneur and you're, you're owning and running your own gym and owning and running your own podcast. And it takes a special person um, to mitigate their own hours mm. and to understand the, the pursuit that they have to push in, to put in. Because I- anyone, and I, I truly mean anyone, can go to a nine to five, punch the clock and work. I put that in quotations for sure. eight hours. Right. Really, that's about two hours worth of work. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. We've all been in the corporate right, world, right. sat around the water cooler a little too long, you know. Played on the internet. Played on the internet. Yeah. And it takes a true entrepreneurial, it takes a true growth mindset to advocate for your own hours. 
mm-hmm. and create your own hustle. Yeah. And, and you're out there, like you said, getting that sale. And I know a couple near and dear to me that are doing entrepreneurship on their own mm-hmm. and that are creating their own hours. And nobody's telling you when to wake up. Nobody's telling you when to go to the office. You have to find that internal fire yourself. Yeah. And I think that's where your purpose, you know, comes into play. Right. When we were talking earlier about years, you said years, I'm still developing, you know, I'm still developing my purpose. I'm still coming to that. Right. It's interesting because I feel like that was my path as well. Like I didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I want to be this or I want to contribute this to the world. It's just been this evolution over the last five years of my life that I came to the statement that I lead off the podcast with. Right. Right. That one sentence was five years in the making. Right. And it's a brilliant sentence. <laughs> Which is crazy, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's, what kind of idiot wants to put in the work to five years to make one, <laughs> one, this one sentence, right? This is what I have to show for my, <laughs> my years of effort. I have a sentence for you. <laughs> Jason Archer, he's going he's, he's to have himself a quote, you know? <laughs> I'll have a whole page for you by the time I'm 70. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's brilliant. If we can leave the world a quote, if you, you know, we were talking again yeah. about the, the, the cards. Right, right. Stacking one card upon each other day after day. Next That's thing it. you know, you got a deck of cards. That's it, man. Next That's thing it. you know, you you're you're crushing mediocrity. You know. That's that's the plan, my friend. Well, I appreciate you helping me do that today, man. I know we've gone a little bit over time, but uh, we can definitely do this again if you're up for it. And oh, I'd love absolutely. To dive a little yeah. bit deeper in some of your other work, the spoken word, the other book, Lost of the World, and the rest of it. Um, before we jump off, though, um, tell me a little bit about what you look for in the world of success? What does that look like for you? So my definition of success definitely changes um, every every day, not to sound cliche, um, but it's changed over through events and over through times and perspective. Mm-hmm. So again, kind of what we were talking about taking the blue pill and, and living the monotonous life. I used to view that as success. I really did. because I grew up with a single mom and I, I, w- I wanted to provide for her. And I, that's definitely still my aspiration. But I would always view, you know, media and society and, and the nine to five and, and, you know, like the nice, the shiny car and, you know, the white pick fence rather like that was my view of success. Now I view success as just the fact that I get to live and breathe and the fact that um, throughout the course of my life, there was a time that I didn't even walk. So taking steps every day is success for me. Um, I know it's common in the CrossFit world, but I truly believe it that I want to be better than who I was yesterday. Mm-hmm. So success is always advocating for that. It's always reading more material. It's, it's material. It's always growing in myself more. It's always loving myself more. Uh, success to me is just getting the chance to take a breath, honestly. Beautiful. I, I think it's a beautiful miracle. I love the way you phrase that, to advocate for that, you know, to be an agent for yourself. I think it's one of those things that's just super powerful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So before I ask my last question, uh, let's tell everyone how they can get in touch with you and how they can consume your writing and connect with you online. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that to consume. Um, so mm. Danny Morgan Roberts is my full name. You can find me on platforms, Instagram at here haiku again, a uh, little play on words. So haiku five, seven, five, uh, here I go again. So here I coo again. And uh, Facebook, Danny Morgan Roberts as well. Uh, I do have a website. It is on a Wix. So the um, URL is a little bit tricky. Mm-hmm. So I often tell people, just look up my name, look up my book, and it'll, it'll guide you to my, to my website where I post um, daily haikus. Uh, I got a blog, everything like that. 
Um, my book is titled "The Blue." Uh, my first book is titled "A Beautiful Mind in an Ugly Place." Um, my second book is titled uh, "Heartbeats and High Fives." Uh, my third is titled "The Sun, the Moon, and the Scars," and then my fourth one is titled "Lost to the World." Uh, the first one is a personal memoir of mine, and the other three are 365-day haiku books. Nice, man. Nice. Well, we can link all that up in the show notes. Um, are these available on Amazon as well? They are, and I'm also on Amazon, and I got the the fortunate um, <clears throat> acceptance into Amazon's author program as well. Nice. Congratulations. So I had to apply for that and do a bunch of hoopla for that. But Jumped I, through I some hoops. Jumped through some hoops, but I had to prove... USB and, and a lack of um, um, plagiarism and everything on my <laughs> end, and, and they accepted me into that program. So That's I'm on Goodreads, Amazon as well. Good. Uh, my full name pops up on a lot of um, platforms. Awesome stuff, man. So my last question is always the same, and that is, what does wellness mean to you? Uh, wellness is advocating for yourself. It's when someone asks what you love, and you say, like, well, I love paddleboarding. I love riding motorcycles. I love being on podcasts. I love writing books. It's like, well, I actually, I love myself. So wellness is internal wellness. Wellness is eating proper foods. Wellness is investing. Wellness is a diet. So when, when we, when we have a diet and it's not just our foods, it's who we hang out with. It's who we, we join in our days, share our 24 hours with. It's what we invest in our time. It's what we put on at night when, you know, everything else is completed. So wellness is, is emotional, physical, psychological. It's complete and harmonious. Um, um, uh, competency. I love that, man. I couldn't agree more. Dude, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for sharing your story. And, thank you very and, much and, for having me. I yeah. appreciate you asking and, and uh, provoking that. Absolutely, my friend. I appreciate the vulnerability and the honesty and the straight talk. It's uh, such a refreshing way to communicate. And I, I, that's one of the reasons I really love podcasts. We get to hear the whole story. Exactly. Not just some edited version of it. Yep. So thank you for that. Um, guys, if you are interested in learning more about Daniel, be sure and check out the links in the show notes, pick up his books. Um, I'm sure you've got some schedule somewhere where you can, uh, uh, where we can hear your spoken word going on. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I'm living down in Arizona right now. I was performing every Thursday at the Lost Leaf Lounge. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, with everything going on in the world, uh, society, um, <laughs> thank you, COVID. Thank you, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> We're not allowed to connect. I used to hug trees. Now I can't even hug those around <laughs> me. So, um, uh, that's kind of taking a little stalemate, but I'll get back into it, get back into the flow of things and I'll be out there for sure. Well, we'll link all that up guys. And, uh, until then on behalf of Daniel and myself, we will see you in the next episode. Take care. Later. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.